Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Hello, church. We're so glad that you're with us. We have several here at the sound stage. We're always a tiny group here, but we know we have thousands out there listening on various platforms. Um, Since we started, I say we, Derek Glover did all the work for us, volunteered and continues to volunteer to run it. Um, Derek, you can correct me in the chat or send me a note later so we can correct it. If I remember correctly, we've only had this up for about two years. And we, this week, got a message that we've had over 80,000 downloads of the podcast. And that's separate from all the viewing on other platforms. So it's amazing. It is. And we need to start today just by mentioning briefly that our prayers continue for Israel. And they continue for all the innocent victims that are caught in the maelstrom and um, meat grinder that is war. Please remember the Jews are our older brothers and sisters in the faith, and Paul warned that us, we Gentiles who have been grafted into the tree are not greater than the tree, and hatred of any, any ethnic group is foreign to Christian doctrine and teaching. We do not do that. Those who are marching and calling for the death of Jews, the gassing of Jews, and the driving of them into the sea are not hearing the voice of Christ in this. There's, this is not a moral equivalent issue. We need to keep our minds clear. Uh, the fact is, I've seen the programs um, that are done for children in Gaza and in Lebanon and the like, where they sing little songs in the ages of three and four about killing the Jews and about the, the glory of dying to, for killing the Jews. This is going to be a generational issue. Uh, God said so before it even got started because the Arabs come from uh, Abraham and so did the Jews. They come from different sons. And God said there will always be enmity and strife. But we should not sit back then and say, well, he said there would be. We should always be agents of peace. We should always be people who pray and where we should be shelters for anyone who is under the gun and under fire that they will find a place with us and in our arms. And that really helps us begin to talk about the subject this week. And next week, uh, I'm, I'm going to go a bit harder on it and say some things I've never said in sermons before. So hang in there. Uh, and it's, I'm looking forward to it. What kind of world did God give us? One of my favorite songs of all time is What a Wonderful World. And my favorite version of it is Louis Armstrong. Just classic, cannot be improved upon. Nobody else should do it, but they've done it, and they've done it great. So regardless, and in fact, there's my second favorite song would have to be a redo of that, kind of, as a mashup with uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, done by the great Iz from Hawaii. I would tell you his last name, but I would butcher it. But is it really 
a wonderful world. We talked last week about God calling this world good and the low view that Calvinist Reformed churches have of this world. And the Bible can be very confusing on this. And I, I really don't understand why ministers will often say the Bible is very plain when it isn't. We, we really need to be more honest about our book because it's a translation. And all translations are interpretations. I would always remember that as I would fly back and forth to, to, uh, from Scotland to the States. And we generally would fly Air Canada or the British Airways because they would connect most you know, best for us out of Glasgow. And the magazines, if you're in Air Canada, they have... Remember magazines? They don't do those anymore. Um, but they, they actually didn't get rid of them because of COVID. They got rid of them because of weight, believe it or not. It's amazing how much weight they save. But anyway... The article would be in English on this side and French on this side. And I, I read French a lot better than I speak it. I'm told by every French person I've talked to. So I would go back and forth and realize these are two different articles. They're about the same subject, but the language changes them. For example, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we are told to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And yet, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It may help to know that there were two different words used here. Every time that the Bible says, don't love the world, or we are in opposition against the world, it uses a system word, eos. And every time it talks about, and God saw that it was good, and God so loved the world, it uses a place, terra. God, it's, it's all right to love giraffes, Jan, it really is. And they are rather pushy beasties when they see that you have a hand of goods there. It's all right to love bunnies. It's all right to love people. It's all right to love sunrises and sunsets. That's not what God means when he says, don't love the world or, or the things that are in the world. He's talking about don't go by the world's definitions of things. Don't play by the world's rules. Don't define yourself as the world would define yourself. To be pretty, you must look like this. To be manly, you must act like this. To be politically correct or incorrect, you have to choose these. No, don't play the games at all. I'm politically homeless and so happy. <laughs> so happy. Uh, I, this way, I don't have to spend any time defending the indefensible. Because the lesser of two evils is still evil. I choose to be homeless and make my own decisions as I go through life. I don't want to play the game. Well, to talk about what kind of world we're really in, because we answered the first question, what kind of God created the world? Now, what kind of world did that God create? We have to start, of course, with the dinosaurs. I know that's where you were going. <laughs> people have been finding dinosaur bones since there have been people. Records uh, in China all the way back to the second century describe them as the bones of dragons. And they would, of course. It's a part of their culture. Europeans believed they were also dragons, St. George and the dragon and all the dragon uh, myths and such. And, and by the way, I've seen the math on wingspan and such, and dragons can't fly, so sorry. Um, but that said, others thought Meriwether and Clark, uh, around here, we're broadcasting out of Middle Tennessee, and there's the Natchez Trace. And so we think a little bit of Meriwether and Clark, because they went through here before they did the big Western uh, search and it, the voyage of discovery or 
colonization. I, I don't know. But they found the bones too, and they assumed that they were of these massive fish creatures. Not a bad assumption if you don't know what you're looking at. Well, several medieval religious leaders believed they were the bones of demons that God had defeated. In the 1700s and the 1800s, <clears throat> some people said, we bet these are the bones of the Nephilim, or the Nephilim, if we're pronouncing it correctly, which are the giants mentioned in early Genesis. Although, to be fair, the word giant there doesn't necessarily mean large. It can mean of great renown, of great power. But regardless, it wasn't until 1842 when Sir Richard Owen, and he was already a sir by the time, coined the term dinosaur, which means terrible beast or terrible lizard. Uh, it's not a dinosaur, as Americans pronounce it, because that would be a terrible boo-boo. It's a dinosaur. <laughs> he was the first one to coin it, 1842. And he began talking about massive beasts that lived long, long ago, long before man was on earth. And most Christians, by the way, did not in the middle 1800s fight the idea of an old earth. Some did. But even Augustine, who, as we all know, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, an origin of Africa, and Gregory of Nyssa, a lot of them, uh, the early church fathers, said that Genesis was poetry and metaphor, and that the earth was much older than people were saying it might be. Regardless, we, we understand that whenever fundamental, uh, fundamentalism arose in the late 1800s and then ran into Darwinism, people divided into two warring camps into which they still flee today. Young earth creationists believe that the world is less than 10,000 years old. Okay. I don't see any evidence that would back that up, but I don't fight you over that because my salvation is based upon the saving grace of Jesus Christ, not my perfect knowledge of all things. And the same for you. So we can disagree about a host of things. It's only Jesus we need to agree on. That said, they have a story and the story works. And we need to understand that. We always make stories and the stories work until they don't. You know, we, uh, we can even talk to our kids about Christmas and we'll tell stories of Santa Claus, which works until it doesn't. You know, there are a lot of stories that work until they don't. They say that um, all evil we find on this earth springs from the sin of Adam and Eve and Noah's flood. A lot of people don't realize the second. That's important. Adam and Eve's sin poisoned all humanity, they say, and not just young earth creationists, um, reformed theology people do, um, Catholic doctrine is that we are born with original sin in us that we inherited from Adam and Eve, and therefore it poisoned all, humidity, uh, all humanity. Now, the flood physically broke the earth, and because it broke the earth with this great catastrophe, that brings up all the weather problems, you know, tsunamis, earthquakes, and the like. And our sin, God cursed the ground, so we get everything from tsunamis to childhood cancer to ticks and stinging nettles from those two things. That's a story which I was taught and which I absolutely believed because the story works. It works on every level. Does it match the evidence that we find when we dig and measure the earth and we do things like finding atoms and uh, things smaller than atoms and manipulate. No, it doesn't. It just doesn't at all. And I think we need to be honest to back up and say, all right, our story's not working. 
We need to find another story that actually fits the facts we have. And by the way, Christians have always pushed back first against science while the scientists were still Christians. I mean, Newton, Isaac Newton, considered his greatest work to be his commentary on the Bible. I haven't read all of it. I've read enough of it to know it, it wasn't his greatest work. I mean, it was great scholarship. Don't get me wrong there. But so, he needed an editor. Frank, he needed an editor to say, you know, we could do without two-thirds of this prose and get to it. But there are some current writers I could bring that up about too. For example, for the longest time, not until the mid-1900s, was it considered normal to give women pain control during childbirth? Because how can we go against God? God said that they'd be cursed with pain in childbirth. Most of you don't even know that that happened, but that was a big roaring fight. People left churches. They split things. Families didn't talk to each other over that. And there's so many others. The earth um, moves around the sun. That one caused some issue. But the greatest battle, of course, became between evolutionists, and there are many varieties, and believers, and there are many varieties, but it was unnecessary. And I don't want to go down that road at this time. Just be aware, early church fathers didn't have this problem, but we inherited a problem from the 1800s. Here's the problem. Dinosaurs, because they're not around. Oh, we kept thinking we're going to find them in deepest Africa. We're going to find them in Loch Ness. We're going to find, there's no food for, anyway, that, that we're going to find it here, we're going to find it, and we don't. And the reason that's a problem, people lost their professorships, people were booted out of pulpits, people split families over what happened to the dinosaurs, because the, the rage of the common scientific curricula and biblical theological was God created the heavens and the earth and it's good if something is extinct that means that God made a mistake or his will was overcome how dare you blaspheme God there is nothing extinct that was massive and you would be fought hard there are several documentaries on this and even a couple of movies that have been based upon this argument over the years but now we know And we know, because we can see, we can measure, we can look at the data, that about 97% of all species that have ever lived are now extinct. I remember that we watched, I think it was the third Jurassic Park movie, because we're slow learners. And there always comes that time in a Jurassic Park movie where somebody's trying to to kill the dinosaur that they worked so hard to bring to life, um, which seems only fair, because the dinosaur is trying to kill them. And somebody will yell, in fact, in this movie, they did, oh no, it'll be extinct. And I'm going, it was. You brought it back. This is, I would call that level field then. Uh, But regardless, they don't let me write for Hollywood for many reasons, I'm sure. Here's the thing. This universe is exceptionally talented at killing. In fact... You will not survive this planet. I can say that with 100% certainty. I will not survive this planet. Neither will you. And that's what I need you to understand. God did not place, regardless of what he did with Adam and Eve, God did not place us in a garden. 
He placed us in a battlefield. Once we understand this, it answers all the questions that we postulated at the beginning of this so long ago. That any story we tell about our faith and our world has to, has to fit with scripture. The experience of the church throughout the ages. Free will. Reconciling faith and, and science. And the fifth, be consistent with your experience. And this one does. I cannot find a story that answers all of these things except for you were born in a battlefield and hear me, I'm sorry, but hear this. God did not put you on this planet to survive. He put you here to fight, to grow, to learn, to struggle, and to move closer to what he calls good. Think about the word good for a moment. Have you ever, if you take vitamins, have you ever accidentally chewed one? Not one that was a gummy version or Flintstones, which were horrible, but one that was not meant to be chewed. Have you ever bitten into a pill that wasn't supposed to be bitten into? That's a pretty horrible thing. I knew a guy once when he had a headache, he'd pop some aspirin in his mouth and chew them. I decided we couldn't be friends. Amanda could do that. How can you trust with anything else around you in your life? I've bitten into one and gone, oh, that is horrible. Now, set that, remember that. Have you ever bitten into chocolate? That's good, wasn't it? Yeah. If you don't like chocolate, see the man chewing aspirin. <laughs> Chocolate's wonderful. Why is chocolate wonderful? Because it's not that good for you. Why is a vitamin horrible? No, it's good for you. Good doesn't always mean pleasant. Good doesn't always mean nice. Think about Romans 8, 28 for a moment. We read about that a lot. We read it a lot. We quote it a lot. That all things work together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. Let me just be blunt. Problem is, we don't see it that way. How can a child dying of cystic fibrosis be good? How can the tsunami that hit Indonesia and killed 230,000 people work out for good? We'll talk more about that next week. How did the planes bringing down the Twin Towers work out for good? I don't know, but maybe, just maybe, there is a hint and a strange reply that Jesus gave to a questioner. A man came up to him and said, I, I want to be good. Good master, what good thing must I do? And he looked, Jesus looked at the man and said, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, and that is the Father. I want you to sit back now. Let's work with the concept. If God alone is good, and all things work together for good, and we are created to live forever, not on this planet, but with he who is good, then it makes sense that we would be born on a battlefield so that the struggles, the pains, the tragedies, oh, and the joys that we face here are to get us ready for what happens next. Well, 
we aren't told for sure what happens next. It's fascinating to see how little the Bible talks about what happens next. It does say that the gates of heaven aren't locked. So it seems people are coming and going, not like they're losing salvation. They made a mistake in heaven. No, it is uh, by the language indicated that they have work to do. We love our work. That's why it's heaven. But we have work to do here and we have work to do there. And you don't learn how to do a job unless you go through some pain first. I, I, we've all seen the TikTok videos. I don't have TikTok on my phone, but it pushes through on Twitter sometimes now, X. I feel badly hitting, opening up an app called X when my wife's out of town. That seems wrong. It really does. I, so I'm going to call it Twitter, shall we? Twitter's good. But sometimes they'll feed it in. And, and there's a theme, and I don't know how many of these are real and how many of these are put on, right? Because the internet is a wild place. But it will be people crying. I went through, I got my degree, and, I did, and now I can't get a job that pays over this. Yeah. Yeah, it is a battlefield. If you want what your parents had, it took them 35 extra years to get it. Get started. You're not going to get that day one, day two. It's going to be a fight. And then when you get all the skills and you get tired and something happens and we fade from this world, you are prepared for what God needs you to do because he's moving you to becoming good like him. You'll fit in the family. That's what he's going for. There are very few knowns in psychology. I hate to bring that up. I really do. First doctorate was in that. And something like 50% of all psychological findings cannot be replicated. So that's a good soft science. I always said if psychologists built a rocket through the switch and it didn't do anything, they'd say, well, we, you know, we did our part. The rocket's being resistant. That said, we, there are some absolute knowns. And one of them is what happens to you does not matter nearly as much as what you do with it. I don't play poker. I don't understand the thrill of losing money. Uh, so I, I don't. But I understand the concept of the cards you are dealt. You play the cards you are dealt. And you, I'm told there's some skill in that. I have, don't, don't write me and tell me about it. Because frankly, I don't, don't want to read about that. So regardless, what cards have you been dealt? Ananias looked at Paul when Paul was still Saul and for three days he'd been blind not eating or drinking crying absolutely beside himself because he realized that the very person whose followers he had been persecuting and killing imprisoning driving them from their homes men women and children was the Christ and Ananias comes to him three days later looks down at him and goes what are you waiting for? It's a fascinating question. He follows it up with arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, which I would also say to anybody out there that has not been baptized. Don't wait. Let's get this done. Get in touch with us. But it's that whole, what are you waiting for? I used to have a counseling practice, um, and it's a long story why I got it. I don't counsel now um, because I never, that was never my intention. I inherited it, basically. We came back to the States, and uh, the people in town that had it 
said, oh, we're retiring. Here you go. And so there I had it for eight years. But I treated a lot of people with depression. And I understand depression. I understand pain. I have pain. And my pain is not as bad as your pain. I'm not trying to measure up to you. And my depression is probably not as bad as yours either. But the fact is, I understand it. I've gone through my dark times. I've told Cammy uh, several times in the early years of our marriage, I would use the wolf analogy. I would just say, there's a black dog or there's a wolf uh, that's outside the house. And she would understand what that means. That I'm, I'm struggling. It's not her. She's wonderful and amazing in all ways. I learned, however, working with patients, I always learn more, I think, than I ever taught that the question, how are you using your depression, needed to come into play. No, not at first. At first, when you've been hurt, sad, broken, job loss, child loss, marriage loss, whatever it is, howl at the moon and lament, scream into the void. Over one third of the Psalms are complaint Psalms. And that was a songbook for the early church. Yeah. And if you're wanting to defend God here by rushing in saying, but they, but they resolve near the end. In other words, well, at the end, they still worship God. Two things. One, not all of them do. Two, deciding to worship God anyway is a sign of great strength. It's not a sign that you're not allowed to lament. You're still allowed to lament. My mother is struggling. Her mind is failing her. And I get some strange phone calls and I go to see her and I have strange conversations. I'm allowed to lament that. I'm allowed to. I'm allowed to look in the mirror and, and realize, uh-oh, I'm all those athletic things I thought about trying, nope. <laughs> right now, getting out of the recliner, you know, I basically want to do the gymnastics move at the end and see what the Russian judge gives me. <laughs> I understand these things, but I want you to think about this just for a moment. If you are in pain, if you have fear, loss, what are you doing with it? Every beautiful piece of art, every beautiful poem, every, every song comes from pain. Somebody took their pain and did something with it. Somebody this week asked me if I was a musician, and I said no. I said, I can play music, but there's a real difference between playing music and a musician. When a musician plays, you hear their heart. You hear the pain. You hear the gut-wrenching things they've gone through. You know, I can remember, this is a long time ago, Janice Ian's one hit at 17 nearly broke me. And it wasn't because of the way too long sax solo in the middle. It was the verbiage I think everybody could relate to. Um, I think of Don McLean's songs, such as Empty Chairs and Crossroads. They're, and those are from my era. And people are still writing amazing songs, but they're take Beethoven's pain. He poured it out. Is there anything more beautiful than the Moonlight Sonata? I don't think so. I don't. How are you using it? Could you create poetry? Could you write a guidebook for other people who are going through pain? Because we need that. We need, we need books on how do I die? What do dying people need? That's actually a title of a book. What do dying people need? It's a great book. Uh, how do I deal 
with Alzheimer's and others or in myself? How do I deal with job loss? How do I bounce back from this, that, or the other? Create something with it. Create something. You know, there are people that have asked me so many times, how do I deal with angry emails and the angry calls? And, and the like? I always say, my, I remember my job. My job is to break the ice so that the people sailing behind me have an easier ride. The first one over the wall gets the arrows. Okay. This world, is, this universe is going to kill me anyway. Let's, let's go. If you allow the pain and disappointment to make you a permanent victim or recluse, was the pain wasted? No lessons learned? No gifts to drop along the way? Is there no gain from pain? C.S. Lewis wrote two books which need to be read in a certain order. He wrote The Problem of Pain. And one of the great theses of that book is pain, we always assume is a negative and a bad for us, but what if pain is good for us? But then you need to read the second book because he married late in life and he married a woman he dearly loved and who dearly loved him. And shortly after their marriage, she had cancer, and she died. So his book, The Problem of Pain, then he has to answer the pain in his own life that he wasn't expecting, and he writes, A Grief Observed. And reading them back to back, I think, is pure, honest. Here's what I think the facts are, but here's how it feels to me. And I love that. I love that honesty to deal with this. By the way, I never say anything like, how are you going to use your pain to somebody who is in crisis? So don't you do it. Wait until the crisis becomes chronic. It's, it's been there a while. And now we're going to either decide to fold our cards and step back and let the universe kill us by helping it, or we're going to need some help to figure out how to move forward. We might need somebody to carry us. And so work with that. Just allow them to challenge God. Maybe after you've been hurt, you will mourn who you used to be. Well, here's the news. You will never be what you are. But God can use you as you are. I will never be as young, strong, handsome, and witty as I thought I was but God can use me as I am. We are in a battlefield, but God knows the battlefield. He has a better view of it. My mother used to love to do puzzles, those 500, 750, 1,000 piece puzzles. I tap out at 500. Um, she would go further. And she would have a little folding table set up somewhere where she would go and do a little bit of that. When I was a boy... Sometimes she wouldn't touch it for days because she got stuck. And then I watched her one time go to the far side of the room and get up on a chair and look over at it and go, oh, and she got off the chair, went over and found a couple pieces. Now, I didn't ask her what was going on. I kind of figured that out and I immediately applied it to my life. There are a lot of times I look up, I don't see where these go together, but God sees it from a different direction, a different viewpoint. Trust him, he knows the battlefield.
Pearl S. Buck wrote a very powerful book that uh, wrote about poor Chinese laborers who stepped away from the rice field, had their baby, and returned within minutes to do their work. People in developing countries do not expect their sick child or spouse to get better. They do not expect their child to survive to adulthood. They know there's no medicine. There's no help for them. The people of Gaza, even though they have shown support for Hamas, I don't think they understand how opulently the leaders of Hamas live in gutter. That they're worth billions because they take the aid money and then they put all the medicine and food that they want for the fighters in the tunnels and don't let the people in. I don't think they understand that. I think sometimes we need to remember that people look up at the sky and they don't expect to be saved. They don't expect there to be food. They, look, they know nothing but pain. They know they're on a battlefield. And people in the West forget that. We assume we're supposed to be in a garden. And as I've said before, we're the only people in the history of the world that if our microwave breaks, we get in front of it and go, there is no God. <clears throat> when pain comes, we're offended. I was asked once when that counseling days to go see a man in a hospital because he was having a very difficult time. He was very, very angry. And I said, can you talk to me about it? And they, they said, well, he was a health nut. Never, from the time he was a kid, only ate the right things, did the right exercise. In America back then, that was a Jack Lane type kind of character. And he really, he went with all of that. And he's got cancer and he's mad. So I walked in. I've never been one of those counselors, more like, you know, the Mr. Rogers. No, I don't have that kind of time. <clears throat> so um, I just kind of walked into the room and looked at him. And he glared at me because he knew I was yet another thorn in his side. I said, so you got cancer. And oh, did I hear language. Uh, but being from a military family, I'd heard language. So it, true, a couple of adjectival forms were new, but got through it. And I looked at him and I said, and he, he unloaded how angry he was because of all he'd done right. And I said, did you think it made you immortal? Did you think a bus couldn't kill you? He said, something will kill us all. We're not in charge of that. We have no control of that. What we have control of is who the universe is killing. Who we're going to be during that process. We can choose that until our brain goes and we can't even choose that. And then the rest of the people have to choose to love us when our brain's gone. Yeah. God never promised us a garden. He promised us uh, difficulty. In this world, you will have trouble, the scripture says. And, uh, well, that one, we all say, okay, we get that one. In Revelation 3, verses 20 through 22, to the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Please remember, the one speaking this is portrayed in the book of Revelation as a slaughtered lamb. And he said, if you're victorious like I was, you'll sit on this throne. Don't do it the way the world, don't think about the way the world looks at things. Hebrews 4.9, our Sabbath rest waits for us. 
This is not Sabbath for us. Take Sabbath. Sabbath's important. But this isn't where you're going to get your rest. It waits for us. We're on a battlefield and we are called to bring light and order just as the Spirit did in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. We who are filled with the Spirit are to bring order, joy, love, grace, sacrifice, and, and light into every situation, every sickbed, every tragedy, every loss. We are never told, and this is going to, if you've never heard this yet, this is going to really get you. We are never told in the Bible to be good so we can go to heaven. Never. We're told to be good because our Father is good. And we are called, 2 Corinthians, one of my favorite chapters, chapter 5. We are called to be ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors of Christ on the battlefield. Will it be safe? No. But it will be good. And so now we know the answers to the two biggest questions we asked long ago. What kind of God created the world and what kind of world did that God create? And more next week, we'll talk even more bluntly about a couple of things. So what do we do? We stand up. We armor up. We face forward. And we move. For there is work to be done. But there's also room for lament. Those of you that are caught in the lament cycle right now, we get that. No judgment from us. We've all been there. In fact, Psalm 137, I think of a lot. They were just taken into Babylonian captivity. And the Israelites were known for their poetry, their songs, and their writing, their art. Because it was very elaborate Somewhat like Muslim art is today, Islamic art, because both of them were not allowed to portray any living thing in their art. So it had to do with colors. They could do plants, colors, and things like that. Uh, so the Babylonians wanted, wanted them to contribute. And they said, sing us songs. And they said, no. And they hung their instruments up in the willow trees. And Psalm 137 said, by the rivers of Babylon, they wanted us to play, but we wept because we remembered Zion. It's okay to every now and then pull back into your room and cry. To see Jewish students locked into their dorms and the police telling them that the safest thing to do is to avoid Brooklyn for the next few days. And to hear the pounding on the doors and the howl for their blood. It's okay to pull back and mourn this. It's okay to mourn what people have taught these people that are on the streets now rioting for the death of Jews. They didn't learn that from nobody. They, they were taught this. It's okay to mourn. But then sometimes you do have to get up and you have to move forward. And that's what we pray we're doing here. But if one of you needs carrying, don't be ashamed to say you need to be carried a bit. Because we all do. We all need to be carried sometime. Usually more than once. Right, church? Don McLean, who most Americans know for his song, Vincent and American Pie. Um, he has a great Scottish name, McLean. But he's Jewish. And the, song, the album, American Pie, actually has a couple of Jewish songs on it. One is about a dreidel, which is a, a top 
uh, a spinning top that they have that has religious symbols on the sides. It's, it's a game and a teaching tool. But the other is about Psalm 137. Now, when he goes and does concerts, he does it in a four-part round. People, we never know if we're going to have five people or 30 people here at the sound stage. So we're not going to try to do it as a round. I would love for you to hear it as a round. So look that up after you've done watching every video we've ever done, <laughs> which I think is like 530 or something now. But anyway. 